Chapter 4 of Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 4 Comparison of the Two Classifications. Is reputation a fair test of natural ability? It is the only one I can employ, and I justified in using it. How much of a man's success is due to his opportunities? How much to his natural power of intellect? This is a very old question on which a great many commonplaces have been uttered and need not be repeated here. I will confine myself to a few considerations, such as seem to me aptly adequate to prove what is wanted for my argument. Let it clearly be borne in mind what I mean by reputation and ability. By reputation I mean the opinion of contemporaries, revised by posterity, the favourable result of a critical analysis of each man's character by many biographers. I do not mean high social or official position, nor such as implied by being the mere lion of a London season, but I speak of the reputation of a leader of opinion, of an originator, of a man, to whom the world deliberately acknowledges itself largely indebted. By natural ability I mean those qualities of intellect and disposition which urge and qualify men to perform acts that lead to reputation. I do not mean capacity without zeal, nor zeal without capacity, nor even a combination of both of them, without an adequate power of doing a great deal of very laborious work, but I mean a nature which, when left to itself, will, urged by an inherent stimulus, climb the path that leads to eminence, and has strength to reach the summit, one which, if hindered or thwarted, will fret and strive until the hindrance is overcome, and it is again free to follow its labor-loving instinct. It is almost a contradiction in terms to doubt that such men will generally become eminent, on the other hand, there is plenty of evidence in this volume to show that few have won high reputations without possessing these particular gifts. It follows that the men who achieve eminence and those who are naturally capable are to a large extent identical. The particular meaning in which I employ the word ability does not restrict my argument from a wider application, for if I succeed in showing, as I undoubtedly shall do, that the concrete triple event of ability combined with zeal and with capacity for hard labour is inherited, much more will there be justified for believing that any one of its three elements, whether it be ability or zeal or capacity for labour, is similarly a gift of inheritance. I believe, and shall do my best to show, that if the eminent men of any period had been changelings when babies, a very fair proportion of those who survived and retained their health up to fifty years of age would, notwithstanding their altered circumstances, have equally risen to eminence. Thus, to take a strong case, it is incredible that any combination of circumstances could have repressed Lord Brougham to the level of undistinguished mediocrity. The arguments on which I rely are as follow. I will limit their application for the present to men of the pen and to artists. First, it is a fact that numbers of men rise, before they are middle-aged, from the humbler ranks of life to that worldly position, to which it is of no importance to their future career, how their youth has been passed. They have overcome their hindrances, and thus start fair with others more fortunately reared in the subsequent race for life. A boy who is to be carefully educated is sent to a good school, where he acquires little useful information, but where he is taught the art of learning. The man of whom I have been speaking has contrived to acquire the same art in a school of adversity. Both stand on equal terms when they have reached mature life. They compete for the same prizes, measure their strength by efforts in the same direction, and their relative successes are thenceforward due to their relative natural gifts. There are many such men in the eminent class, as biographies abundantly show. 
Now, if the hindrances to success were very great, we should expect all who surmount them to be prodigious of genius. The hindrances would form a system of natural selection by repressing all whose gifts were below a certain very high level. But what is the case? We find very many who have risen from the ranks, who are by no means prodigious of genius, many who have no claim to eminence, who have risen easily in spite of all obstacles. The hindrances undoubtedly form a system of natural selection that represses mediocre men, and even men of pretty fair powers. In short, the class is below upper D, but many of upper D succeed, a great many of upper E, and I believe a very large majority of those above. If a man is gifted with vast intellectual ability, eagerness to work, and power of working, I cannot comprehend how such a man should be repressed. The world is always tormented with difficulties waiting to be solved, struggling with ideas and feelings to which it can give no adequate expression. If then there exists a man capable of solving those difficulties, or of giving a voice to those pent-up feelings, he is sure to be welcomed with universal acclamation. We may almost say that he has only to put his pen to paper, and the thing is done. I am here speaking of the very first class men, prodigies, one in a million, or one in ten millions, of whom numbers will be found described in this volume as specimens of hereditary genius. Another argument to prove that the hindrances of English social life are not effectual in repressing high ability is that the number of eminent men in England is as great as in other countries where fewer hindrances exist. Culture is far more widely spread in America than with us, and the education of their middle and lower classes far more advanced. But for all that, America most certainly does not beat us in first-class works of literature, philosophy, or art. The higher kind of books, even of the most moderate date, read in America, are principally the work of Englishmen. The Americans have an immense amount of the newspaper article writer, or of the member of Congress stamp of ability, but the number of their really eminent authors is more limited even than with us. I argue that, if the hindrances of the rise of genius were removed from English society as completely as they have been removed from that of America, we should not become materially richer in highly eminent men. People seem to have the idea that the way to eminence is one of great self-denial, for which there are hourly temptations to diverge, in which a man can be kept in his boyhood only by a schoolmaster's severity or a parent's incessant watchfulness and in afterlife by the attractions of fortunate friendships and other favourable circumstances. This is true enough of the great majority of men, but it is simply not true of the generality of those who have gained great reputations. Such men, biographies show to be haunted and driven by an incessant instinctive craving for intellectual work, if forcibly withdrawn from the path that leads towards eminence, they will find their way back to it, as surely as a lover to his mistress. They do not work for the sake of eminence, but to satisfy natural craving for brain work, just as athletes cannot endure repose on account of their muscular irritability, which insists upon exercise. It is very unlikely that any conjunction of circumstances should supply a stimulus to brain work. Commensurate with what these men carry in their own constitutions, the action of external stimuli must be uncertain and intermitted. Owing to their very nature, the disposition abides. It keeps a man ever employed now wrestling with his difficulties, now brooding over his immature ideas, and renders him a quick and eager listener to innumerable, almost inaudible teachings that others are keenly on the watch and are sure to miss. These considerations lead to my third argument. I have shown that social hindrances cannot impede men of high ability from becoming eminent. I shall now maintain that social advantages are incompetent to give that status to a man of moderate ability. 
It would be easy to point out several men of fair capacity who have been pushed forward by all kinds of help, who are ambitious and exert themselves to the utmost, but who completely fail in attaining eminence. If great peers, they may be lord lieutenants of countries. If they belong to great county families, they may become influential members of parliament and local notabilities. When they die, they leave a blank for a while in a large circle, but there is no Westminster Abbey and no public mourning for them, perhaps barely a biographical notice in the columns of the daily papers. It is difficult to specify two large classes of men with equal social advantages, in one of which they have high hereditary gifts, while in the other they have not. I must not compare the sons of eminent men with those of non-eminent, because much which I ascribe to breed others might ascribe to parental encouragement and example. Therefore I will compare the sons of eminent men with the adopted sons of popes and other dignitaries of the Roman Catholic Church. The practice of nepotism among ecclesiastics is universal. It consists in their giving those social helps to a nephew or other more distant relative that ordinary people give to their children. Now I shall show abundantly in the course of this book that the nephew of an eminent man has far less chance of becoming eminent than a son, and that a more remote kinsman has far less chance than a nephew. We may therefore make a very fair comparison for the purposes of my argument between the success of the sons of eminent men and that of the nephews or more distant relatives who stand in the place of sons to the high unmarried in ecclesiastics of the Romish church. If social help is really of the highest importance, the nephews of the popes will attain eminence as frequently or nearly so as the sons of other eminent men, otherwise they will not. Are then the nephews, etc., of the popes, on the whole, as highly distinguished as are the sons of other equally eminent men? I answer decidedly not. There have been a few popes who would of illustrious races, such as that of the Medici, but in the enormous majority of cases the pope is the ablest member of his family. I do not profess to have worked up the kinships of the Italians with any special care, but I have seen amply enough of them to justify me in saying that the individuals whose advancement has been due to nepotism are curiously undistinguished. The very common combination of the able son and an eminent parent is not matched, in the case of high Romish ecclesiastics, by an eminent nephew and an eminent uncle. The social helps are the same, but hereditary gifts are wanting in the latter case. To recapitulate... I have endeavoured to show in respect to literary and artistic eminence. 1. That men who are gifted with high abilities, even men of class upper E, easily rise through all the obstacles caused by inferiority of social rank. 2. Countries where there are fewer hindrances than in England, to a poor man rising in life, produce a much larger proportion of persons of culture, but not of what I call eminent men. 3. Men who are largely aided by social advantages are unable to achieve eminence unless they are endowed with high natural gifts. It may be well to add a few supplementary remarks on the small effects of a good education on a mind of the highest order. A youth of abilities G and X is almost independent of ordinary school education. He learns from passing hints with a quickness and thoroughness that others cannot comprehend. He is omnivorous of intellectual work devouring in a vast deal more than he can utilize but extracting a small percentage of nutriment that makes in the aggregate an enormous supply the best care that a master can take of such a boy is to leave him alone just directing a little here and there and checking desultory tendencies it is a mere accident if a man is placed in his youth in the profession for which he has the most special vocation it will consequently be remarked in my short biographical notices that the most illustrious men have frequently broken loose from the life prescribed by their parents and followed careless of cost, 
the paramount dictation of their own natures. In short, they educate themselves. D'Alembert is a striking instance of this kind of self-reliance. He was a foundling, afterwards shown to be well-bred as a respectability, and put out to nurse as a pauper baby to the wife of a poor glazier. The child's indomitable tendency to the highest studies could not be repressed by his foster-mother's ridicule and dissuasion, nor by the taunts of his schoolfellows, nor by the discouragements of his schoolmaster, who was incapable of appreciating him, nor even by the reiterated deep disappointment of finding that his ideas, which he knew to be original, were not novel, but long previously discovered by others. Of course, we should expect a boy of this kind to undergo ten or more years of apparently hopeless strife, but we should equally expect him to succeed at last and Alembert did succeed in attaining the first rank of celebrity by the time he was twenty-four. The reader has only to turn over the pages of my book to find abundant instances of this emergence from obscurity in spite of the utmost discouragement in early youth. A prodigal nature commonly so prolongs the period when a man's perceptive faculties are at his keenest that a faulty education in youth is readily repaired in after life. The education of Watt, the great mathematician, was of a merely elementary character during his youth and manhood, he was engrossed with mechanical specialities. It was not till he became advanced in years that he had leisure to educate himself, and yet, by the time he was an old man, he had become singularly well-read and widely and accurately informed. The scholar who, in the eyes of his contemporaries and immediate successors, made one of the greatest reputations as such that any man has ever made, was Julius Caesar Scalinger. His youth was, I believe, entirely unlettered. He was in the army until he was twenty-nine, and then he led a vagrant professional life, trying everything and sticking to nothing. At length he fixed himself upon Greek. His first publications were at the age of forty-seven, and between that time and the period of a somewhat early death, he earned his remarkable reputation, only exceeded by that of his son. Boyhood in youth, the period between fifteen and twenty-two years of age, which afford to the vast majority of men the only period for the acquirement of intellectual facts and habits, are just seven years neither more nor less important than other years in the lives of men of the highest order. People are too apt to complain of their imperfect education, insinuating that they would have done great things if they had been more fortunately circumstanced in youth. But if their power of learning is materially diminished by the time they have discovered their want of knowledge, it is very profitable that their abilities are not of a very high description, and that however well they might have been educated, they would have succeeded, but little better. Even if a man be long unconscious of his powers, an opportunity is sure to occur. They occur over and over again to every man that will discover them. Even if a man be long unconscious of his powers, an opportunity is sure to occur. They occur over and over again to every man that will discover them. He will then soon make up for past arrears and outstrip competitors with very many years start in the race of life. There is an obvious analogy between the man of brains and the man of muscle, in the unmistakable way in which they may discover and assert their claims to superiority over less gifted but far better educated competitors. An average sailor climbs rigging, and the average alpine guide scrambles along cliffs, with a facility that seems like magic to a man who has been reared away from ships and mountains. But if he have extraordinary gifts, a very little trial will reveal them, and he will rapidly make up for his arrears of education. A born gymnast will soon, in his turn, astonish the sailors by his feats. Before the voyage was half over, he would outrun them like an escaped monkey. I have witnessed an instance of this myself. Every summer it happens that some young English tourist, who has never previously planted his foot on a crag or ice, succeeds in alpine work to a marvellous degree. Thus far I have spoken only of literary men and artists, who, however, form the bulk of the 250 per million that attain to eminence. 
The reasoning that is true for them requires large qualifications when applied to statesmen and commanders. Unquestionably, the most illustrious statesmen and commanders belong, to say the least, to the classes F and G of ability. But it does not at all follow that an English cabinet minister, if he be a great territorial lord, should belong to those classes, or even to the two or three below them. Social advantages have enormous power in bringing a man into so prominent a position as a statesman that it is impossible to refuse him the title of eminent, though it may be more than probable that if he had been changed in his cradle and reared in obscurity, he would have lived and died without emerging from humble life. Again, we have seen that a union of three separate qualities, intellect, zeal, and power of work, are necessary to raise men from the ranks. Only two of these qualities, in a remarkable degree, namely intellect and power of work, are required by a man who is pushed into public life, because when he is once there, the interest is so absorbing and the competition so keen as to supply the necessary stimulus to an ordinary mind. Therefore, many men who have succeeded as statesmen would have been nobodies had they been born in a lower rank of life. They would have needed zeal to rise. Talleyrand would have passed his way as other grand seigneurs if he had not been ejected from his birthright by a family council on account of his deformity and thrown into the vortex of the French Revolution. The furious excitement of the game overcame his inveterate indolence, and he developed into the foremost man of the period, after Napoleon and Mirabeau. As for sovereigns, they belong to a peculiar category. The qualities most suitable to the ruler of a great nation are not such as lead to eminence in private life. Devotion to particular studies, obstinate perseverance, Geniality and frankness in social relations are important qualities to make a man rise in the world, but they are unsuitable to a sovereign. He has to view many interests and opinions with an equal eye. To know how to yield his favourite ideas to popular pressure, to be reserved in his friendships, and be able to stand alone. On the other hand, a sovereign does not greatly need the intellectual powers that are essential to the rise of a common man, because the best brains of the country are at his service. Consequently, I do not busy myself in this volume with the families of merely able sovereigns, only with those few whose military and administrative capacity is acknowledged to have been of the very highest order. As regards commanders, the qualities that rise a man to a peerage may be of a peculiar kind, that is, would not have raised him to eminence in ordinary times. Strategy is as much a speciality as chess playing, and large practice is required to develop it. It is difficult to see how strategic gifts combined with a hardy constitution, dashing courage, and a restless disposition can achieve eminence in times of peace. These qualities are more likely to attract a man to the hunting field if he have enough money, or if not, to make him an unsuccessful speculator. It consequently happens that generals of high but not very high orders such as Napoleon's marshals and Cromwell's generals are rarely found to have eminent kinsfolk. Very different is the case with the most illustrious commanders. They are far more than strategists and men of restless dispositions. They would have distinguished themselves under any circumstances. Their kinships are most remarkable, as will be seen in my chapter on commanders, which includes the names of Alexander, Scipio, Hannibal, Caesar, Marlborough, Cromwell, the Princess of Nassau, Wellington, and Napoleon. Precisely the same remarks are applicable to demagogues those who rise to the surface and play a prominent part in the transactions of a troubled period, must have courage and force of character, but they need not have high intellectual powers. Nay, it is more appropriate that the intellects of such men should be narrow and one-sided, and their dispositions moody and embittered. These are not qualities that lead to eminence in ordinary times. 
Consequently, the families of such men are mostly unknown to fame, but kinships of popular leaders of the highest order, as of the two Gracchi, of the two Artevelds, and of Mirabeau, are illustrious. I may mention a class of cases that strikes me forcibly as proof that a sufficient power of command to lead to eminence in troubled times is much less unusual than is commonly supposed, and that it lies neglected in the ordinary life. In beleaguered towns, as for example during the Great Indian Mutiny, a certain type of character very frequently made its appearance. People rose into notice who had never previously distinguished themselves and subsided into their former way of life. After the occasion for exertion was over, or during the continuance of danger and misery, they were the heroes of the situation. They were cool in danger, sensible in comfort, cheerful under prolonged suffering, humane to the wounded and sick, encouragers of the faint-hearted. Such people were formed to shine only under exceptional circumstances. They had the advantage of possessing too tough a fibre to be crushed by anxiety and physical misery, and perhaps in consequence of that very toughness, they required a stimulus of the sharpest kind to goad them toward the exertions of which they were capable. The result of what I have said is to show that, in statesmen and commanders, mere eminence is by no means a satisfactory criterion of such natural gifts as would make a man distinguished under whatever circumstances he had been reared. On the other hand, statesmen of a higher order, and the commanders of the very highest, who overthrow all opponents, must be prodigiously gifted. The reader must judge the cases I quote in proof of hereditary gifts by their several merits. I have endeavoured to speak of none but the most illustrious names. It would have led to false conclusions had I taken a larger number, and thus descended to a lower level of merit. In conclusion, I see no reason to be dissatisfied with the conditions under which I am bound, of accepting high reputation as a very fair test of high ability. The nature of the test would not have been altered if I had attempted to readjust each man's reputation according to his merits, because this is what every biographer does. If I had possessed the critical power of a saint beuve I should have merely thrown into literature another of those numerous expressions of opinion, by the aggregate of which all reputations are built. To conclude, I feel convinced that no man can achieve a very high reputation without being gifted with very high abilities, and I trust I have shown reason to believe that few who possess these very high abilities can fail in achieving eminence. End of chapter 4